Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. And we're just going to focus on two verses, verses 23 and 24. Of course, we're in the book of Matthew, one of the records of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon he ever preached. And uh, we're looking at his, his instructions for the life of a believer, for how a believer ought to walk. And so I want to read to you Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the Lord. Sorry, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you one more time and I can just confess uh, that I have felt a week all weekend and you seem to have helped me and I thank you for it. And now we, we ask you just for more help, Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? I'll lift up the cup of thanksgiving. And Lord, I want to just ask another request of you, Lord, that you would meet every individual in this room by your spirit so that we might be more fully formed into a glorious bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let our weakness or past sins hinder You. But we pray that You would move with power, uh, parting any seas, making whatever moves need to be made so that Your people can move forward to know You more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you a story, and it's a story that I feel in some ways obligated to tell you because you have prayed for us many, many times. I've heard stories of Lake Road praying for us in our pursuit of a new building, and so I want to tell you the story of what God did in that whole process. And it looks like you might need your own story uh, somewhere uh, along the along the the path here. The Lord might do something here to bust out a wall, or to uh, create a little more space for this very very full uh, congregation. So, uh, about six years ago, uh, we began to notice that we were uh, running out of space in the building which the Lord had given to us. It was built in uh, 1909, I think, and we loved it. It was a great place for us, uh, but. We were running out of space, so our elders gave a month to uh, fasting and praying. Fridays, we would fast and pray, and we would gather every Friday morning at 6 a.m. and and pray uh, for a couple hours for for a month. And and literally at that point, all we were doing was just laying everything on the table. Lord, what what would you have us do? What would you want us to do? Should we 
bust everything up and become a house church movement. Or at that time, I think we maybe had three pastors who were supported. So we thought, should we maybe try to start three churches with one pastor leading each of those churches? Or should we uh, pursue a bigger space? And as we uh, prayed about those things, and the way we prayed was we, we would pray, Lord, by prophecy or by scriptural principle or by scripture-saturated wisdom, would you lead us? And just, Lord, you're able to say that block. Uh, you're able to uh, give us something from the Word we haven't seen before that would help us. You're able to uh, just give wisdom to our elders. And so we just prayed this way, and he, he didn't see fit to do anything supernatural uh, in terms of a prophetic word, and he uh, <clears throat> didn't, didn't enlighten us into some particularly new scripture that we were ignoring. But as our elders prayed, there was just a unity among all of the brothers that we ought to pursue a bigger space. And our prayer, we wrote out a prayer that we sort of thought consolidated all that the Lord was leading us towards. And that was, Lord, would you give us a city center location with 800 to 1,000 seats so that we can train our children and pray with God's people and see more and more people from Louisville reached for Christ and so we can be a sending base for missions to the ends of the earth. That was our prayer. We just prayed that. I mean, if you went to many, many, many members of uh, Manual, they could repair that, repeat that prayer ad nauseum uh, because it's just been prayed so many times over the course of the next few years. So we went to the church, and we're not big on big manipulative ways of raising money. There was no golden thermometer uh, in the building at any time uh, during, during all of the season. We just went to the church and said, we see the pattern in Scripture is that the gospel is the motive, motive to give. And, uh, and we just see that Paul plainly asks, and we don't want to do more than that. We're not going to highlight the rich or highlight the poor. We're just going to ask God's people to give in light of uh, the need we perceive to uh, be in a, in, a, in a bigger place, to have more room, to fellowship. We were, we were in a situation, uh, you probably don't know anything about this, I'm sure, uh, but where uh, the attempt of fellowship involved uh, navigating a human traffic jam uh, on every given Sunday morning. And so we were always asking the Lord, just would you just give us a little space uh, to be able to interact each, with each other uh, without elbowing one another in the process. And so we were praying this, and... Um, and we went to the church and we asked the Lord to raise some funds. And the, the church was just extremely generous. We don't have a wealthy church, uh, but there was a, a little over $100,000 given or maybe a bit of more than $100,000 given. And we, we said to the church, this is so encouraging. We just love your generosity. We just love your heart for the gospel. And that's not going to do much on the real estate market in Louisville. So thank you, Lord, for what uh, you've done. And yet we just acknowledge the, that this isn't gonna, it's going to take some miracle beyond this. But we started looking for buildings, just putting on our feelers. And uh, we, we were looking for anything, just absolutely anything. We, we looked at an old gymnasium and we were trying to think of ways to make gymnasiums look nice. And we had some ideas. We even had architects draw up plans. And just we found an old uh, Catholic uh, school that would have worked well for us. And we, we put in a, somewhere in the neighborhood of six good offers on different places downtown and nothing, nothing was working. No, nobody would take our offer. We couldn't get people to take our money and, and give us a building. And, uh, and so nothing was working for us. And so uh, we had really become invested in this uh, Catholic school called Mercy. And, uh, and so when Mercy fell through, we began to pray, 
Lord, would you give us mercy or better? That became the church's prayer. And so for a number of weeks and months, we prayed, Lord, mercy or better. And again, there was no gimmicks, no frills, no golden thermometer. We just fasted and prayed and asked the Lord uh, to provide for us. We would say to the people all the time, if we don't get a building, there's churches in way worse situations than us. This is not mission critical. But it does seem like it would be a great gift from the Lord. It does seem like He's led us to pray for it and pursue it. And so we're looking to Him for it. Well, we looked at so many spaces, and uh, we even looked at one place that was so down and out and so edgy, I would have had to get a tattoo to preach there. And, uh, and, uh, and I didn't do that. But uh, anyway, it was just, it was just really... Uh, we were getting to the point where I was starting to feel a lot of empathy for why inner city churches move to the suburbs. Uh, it's not always compromise. It's that there's no space left in, in the middle of the city. And so we began to wonder what God was doing. Well, on one particular day, two of our pastor's wives, uh, Christy King and Heather Young, decided they would just start driving around downtown looking for a building for us. And so they did this, and they found this unbelievable property. Now remember, I told you, we weren't looking for anything special, but they found this unbelievable building. The front of the building is exactly the same almost as Spurgeon's Tabernacle. It's got these massive six Corinthian uh, pillars up front, and then it's this beautiful domed structure that's much like Columbia University in Washington, D.C., if you ever go look at a picture of that. It's just this beautiful facility, and there was a little sign out front of it that said that they, had no, they were no longer meeting in that building, but they were meeting somewhere else. Now, two days later, I have a confession to make. I was on Facebook. Two days earlier, I was on Facebook. Um, that's my Christian liberty. So just, uh, any, anyway, I was, I, I was on, almost on Facebook and, uh, I found out that I knew the new pastor of this church. And so just trembling, I called him. And I congratulated him on becoming the pastor of that church. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, <clears throat> I'm wondering uh, if, if you guys are selling the church since you're not in there anymore, just selling the church building. And he said, uh, well, I don't know. I just became the pastor. We're not sure what's going to happen. And the church is in such bad shape. It's got mold and it's got mildew and it's got uh, asbestos tile and it's really quite a mess. And I said, can we see it? And, and he, he said, well, uh, he said, I, he said I'm, I'm out of town. And he said, I said, well, when do you get back? He said, 8.30 tonight. I said, can we see it at 8.30 tonight? And he said, well, it's, you'd, you'd need masks because it's so bad. I said, I'll, I'll have them. And so at 8.30, I had been to Home Depot. I'd bought those like, uh, you know, um, masks that you wear when you're dealing with toxic fumes. And we walked through this building. And it's, it's done in this ornate plaster style in the sanctuary. And literally 100-pound pieces of plaster were falling down and breaking holes in the stage. That's how bad it was. Linoleum was cracked through every room. Paint was literally peeling off in waves off of the walls. It was just, in, it was just terrible, terrible, terrible in, in, in every way. They literally had such big holes coming through the ceiling that they had garden hoses that would direct the water to Rubbermaid containers that then would be just pumped out the window. It was just, it was just an absolute shambles and I loved it and was just really hopeful the Lord uh, would give it to us and uh, and because it was in but such bad shape we had enough money to maybe make an offer on it we had some help along that way uh, 
from a particular brother or a particular guy. And uh, we had some help along that way, just in the investment into things. And uh, as, we, as we went along, we, uh, we basically were able to make an offer on the building. And then we were able to say, hey, we'll give you our building too. Because they needed a building and our building appraised real well. So that came made our offer even better. And after a lot of, uh, I don't think I had any sleepless nights, but a few prayerful nights, uh, we'll call them, uh, God, God made, led them to receive that offer and we were sold the building. It's only the small matter now of the five million dollars required to renovate it. <laughs> and so we had 21 days between when we got ourselves into a deal with this other church and when we had to finalize that deal. And we recognized that if we didn't have the money, we weren't going to finalize the deal because the worst thing you can do is own a piece of, be- of a property that's falling apart in downtown. You don't, you don't want to own that because you'll make the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and so um, we just began to pray. And, and I, I just promise you, there's, there's no possible way, and we were well aware of the need of foreign missions and well aware that this may not be the best distribution of the Lord's funds, that we, we really were leaving that to Him. But we just began to pray and pray and pray and pray. And one particular brother who had just gone through some pretty astronomical financial situations came to us and said, well, I, I would like to match all offerings the church makes 10 to 1, up to $500,000. And you're like, this does not happen. This does not happen. So that means if our church could raise $500,000, this one brother from the church would match it and it would become $5 million. So we don't preach a ton on money. We're not always preaching on money, but I did preach three sermons on dealing with giving biblically. And the last sermon was really the here's why you give biblically sermon. And on that particular Sunday, there was a snowstorm and zero people came to church. We canceled the services. But we redeemed Facebook and we put the sermon up online. And, and, and we had like literally all of our people from all over the city watching the message as I just sat in an office by myself uh, speaking to a screen. And that night, uh, there were $800,000 in gifts and pledges to the church. And we were able to move forward in pursuing that some of the some of the most significant gifts we received were from our overseas missionaries which was really them saying we 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 believe this is really for you to be a larger sending base we know you've loved us and we know you'll want to love more people through this so we felt very encouraged by that because the last thing we want to do is just build big things in north america while there's others in terrible need well september 3rd came around and we had our first service in that building. And it's still got some kinks to work out, but it's been absolutely glorious. Perhaps the most exciting thing for me about being in that building is, is what some, a brother said to me recently. He's not a member of our church, but he's someone who attends pretty regularly and he's kind of figuring out where he's going to settle down. And he just approached me a few weeks ago and he said, you know, I have been involved in a lot of church uh, building projects and a lot of uh, kind of fundraising efforts. And he said, I've, I've never seen a situation where once the church moved, they were just so the same. And as a pastor, I was like, yes. Because at the end of the day, 
we just viewed moving from one building to another as just potting the plant God had already made. You know, when you have a plant, sometimes it outgrows its pot. And you don't want a new plant. You just want a new pot so those roots can stretch out a little bit more. And God really gave that uh, to us. I tell you that for your encouragement and for your prayers and for your thoughts. But I also tell you that because it's really that situation that gave birth to this sermon. Two weeks before we moved, I I was just thinking, I want to help our people as we we move. And even though we really downplayed moving into the new building, after we started renovating it, you could have gone to a manual for weeks at a time and never heard anything about the building. We weren't, again, we weren't moving the golden thermometer every week. We, We just were preaching the gospel week after week after week. That's what we wanted to be the main thing. But as we got really close to moving into the building, it became, seemed like it was right to address it and to begin to think about what it would take to move into the new building together. And one of the things I really wanted to communicate to our people was moving into the building and the great worship service that we're going to have when we move in there is really unimportant compared to our love for one another in the gospel. And in fact, moving into this building and having this great initial worship service where we knew there'd be all kinds of people visiting, friends and family we hadn't seen in a long time, this this time would actually be offensive to God if we were not united as a people. And God is not a God who's impressed with bricks and mortar. He may give His people bricks and mortar. We should be thankful for the bricks and mortar that are around us right now that are allowing us to be in a place to hear God's Word. But ultimately what pleases God's people is the gospel-rooted and gospel-saturated obedience of His people. That's, that's what brings a smile to His face. And so I, I went to our people, and this is the same way I want to come to you this morning, And just reminded them that there is a continual tendency in the church of Jesus Christ away from real holiness towards ritual. Away from lives of integrity towards lives of ceremony. Away from lives of biblical community to just being a social club. There's no church that is exempt from that tendency. Even if you are a church like this one that keeps the ceremony at an absolute minimum, there is still that potential of slide away from reality and simply into the routine. Even if you keep simple services and just have prayer meetings, it's very possible that people get more preoccupied with the form of what they're doing than the reality that must be matched behind that form. And if you ever want to test how you're doing, try to change something in a local church. It's amazing how people who won't work on changing their marriage for decades are incensed when you change a Sunday school class by five minutes. It's unbelievable how people will not exert Two, two pounds of pressure towards changing major issues of their life will become incensed if you start talking about changing buildings or walls 
or Sunday school programs or the way you do small groups or any of those details of the life of the local church. And when that happens, the church is revealing that they have attached themselves to the ceremony over the reality. And that can happen even when the ceremony is at a bare, bare, bare minimum. No one's exempt from this. It is a, it is an inclination of the flesh. It's a, it's a way the human heart goes when it's not being pulled in another direction by the gospel. I remember someone leaving Emmanuel one time and calling me from another city where they were trying to find a church and they said, Ryan, we think we found a great church. They're preaching the word, but they don't have small groups. And you're kind of like, you mean like in the New Testament? <laughs> we have to be very careful that we do not attach ourselves to the way things are done that are negotiable over above the primary thing that needs to be done, which is the preaching of the Gospel and the cultivation of the church in holiness. Beloved, this congregation is at, a, is at a time of transition. Huge time of transition. You're growing. You have one beloved pastor who's announced their resignation. You're, you're in a season where there'll be lots of changes coming. There's young families here. When you're in those kinds of transitions, things invariably change. But we always want to be a people who only get worked up about the main things changing. And in fact, we should be a people who are eager to change the things that aren't the main things. Because sometimes what worked well 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago is now actually hindering the same thing we valued 40 years ago. And that's a constant thing that pastors have to be diligent about and people need to be diligent about. What's the principle? What's the principle? What's the main thing? What's the most important thing? And let's bust walls and change things if we need to to make sure the main thing always stays the main thing. Well, in this passage, what we're reminded of is that the main thing in worship is not the ceremony, but the love of the community behind the ceremony. And what we're told here is that God hates hypocrisy. Jesus actually gives this command that even if you're doing something good, like an Old Testament Jew bringing a gift to an altar, To praise their God. That's good. That's the height of good. When you're bringing a gift to the altar, you're not at the bar. You're not, you're not frittering away your time playing useless video games. No, you're, you're giving yourself to the worship and praise of God. And Jesus says, if you get there, and then you remember, verse 22, verse 23, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. Now, Jesus preached this sermon in Galilee, which is 80 miles north of Jerusalem. So the idea here is someone's in Jerusalem offering a gift, and Jesus says, put the gift down, trek 80 miles back, and nobody was driving 70. (laughs) 
go 80 miles back, get things right, and then come bring this gift to me. That's how important the maintaining and the cultivation of united loving relationships was to the Lord Jesus Christ. I used to have the privilege of pastoring in a small town in southern Alberta, a town of 300. And uh, there were easily more cows and pigs than people. And uh, there was an older gentleman there who would sometimes come to the church. His name was Archie. I'm sure he's gone to be with the Lord now. And Archie was the sweetest, gentlest saint. But they said there were two things that Archie hated. And they were heresy and hypocrisy. And that's because Archie, over the course of his long life, had become Christ-like. He hated two things. He was a loving man who hated two things. Heresy and hypocrisy. And the Lord Jesus shares that heart. In fact, Archie shared the heart of the Lord Jesus in that he did not want the show of giving gifts, the, the show of worship, when there wasn't the reality of loving God in our relationships. Do you hear the Lord calling us to true worship in these verses? Matthew 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar, make sure it's special and smells nice and make sure all the ceremony goes perfectly. No. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift and i want to make three simple points from this passage first jesus cares how people approach god let's just start with the most very basic thing we could say from this passage There is a right way and a wrong way to approach God. And if we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not conform to the the ways of this world, we'll need to remember that Jesus cares how people approach God because we live in a culture that is bombarding us with this idea. You can approach God any way you want, any time you want, as anything you conceive God to be. If you want to approach God as Vishnu, the God of Hinduism, that's good. That's good. It's all good. As long as you're spiritual. If you want to approach Allah and you believe that's the one true God, that's good. That's good. You're good to go as long as you are worshiping the God you believe in. If, if believing in a higher power would get you off of drugs or alcohol, then you should believe in a higher power because we all know the ultimate good is getting off those drugs and alcohol. Whatever you believe in to make this good thing happen, you go for it. You just believe God as anything you want and you approach Him any way you want. Some people say, I don't go to church. I just like to stare at the mountains. And that's great. I mean, how, what could be wrong with that? I mean, mountains, I love your building. I love our building. But mountains are more beautiful. Right? So that must be good. You, you do it that way. If you want to spin a Buddhist prayer wheel or dip yourself into the river Ganges or pray five times daily like a Muslim, you may worship God as anything you like in any way you like. But the Bible 
clearly and regularly from start to finish speaks against this approach to God. The Bible tells us there is a way, a truth, and a life, and no one comes to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. I used to have an Iranian Christian friend, and he would say, you know what, actually all roads do lead to God. They just don't all lead to the Father. All roads will lead you to God. There is, it's for man to live once and die once, and after that the judgment. You will face God. But only one road leads to a reconciled relationship with God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is here showing us there's a right way and a wrong way to approach God. And just be, and he's showing us that just going through a certain set of rituals doesn't make it the right way. Maybe you remember the story from Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. And you'll remember that, oh boy, so much of the Old Testament is just an illustration of this fact. There is a right way and a wrong way to approach God. You must come to Him in Jerusalem. You must come to Him by sacrifice. You will approach Him on His terms, not on your terms. A real relationship with God is not a choose-your-own-adventure book where, or it's not a Mad Libs where you just fill in the words and make up the religion as you go. True religion is something that God dictates to us, not that we dictate to Him. And you may remember that in Leviticus chapter 10, there's this story of the two sons of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu. Maybe we'll just read a few verses from that. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified. Or by those who draw near to me, I will be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. There's the situation. Aaron is sitting there watching his own two boys have died. But he knows God is in the right. And he holds his peace. And God had every right to take out these boys because they approached God in a way that God had not authorized. We learn later in verse 8 and 9 they had probably gotten drunk. They decided they'd have a few beers, take a few shots, and approach Yahweh. And God didn't think it was funny or cute or a youthful prank, but He struck them dead. Because, beloved, there is a right way and a wrong way to approach God. Sometimes people think, well, as long as I'm praying, it's good. I mean, God, God's not going to reject prayer, right? I mean, He might reject drunkenness. I get that. He might reject sexual immorality, but He's not going to reject me if I'm praying. And yet, we find in the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 9, this unbelievable statement. If anyone turns his ear from hearing the law, 
Even his prayer is an abomination. Abomination, that's the kind of word in the Old Testament that's associated with sexual immorality, with homosexuality. But the Bible is telling us that anyone who is disregarding obedience to God's Word, their prayer is no longer pleasing. There's nothing inherently pleasing to God about faith or prayer or any of these things. They're only pleasing to God as they're in accordance with His Word. So we're told over and over that Jesus cares how people approach God. Well, just there may be someone here who is wondering how they can approach God. Maybe you've never approached God before. Maybe you've grown up in church, but you would say, I've never approached God. Or maybe you're just visiting this fellowship and you know you've never approached God. The one easy, pleasant, and marvelous way to approach God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done everything so that you can approach God. He says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, repent and believe. Turn from your sins and trust me. I had the privilege of sitting with a couple of the children from this church and talking about faith. And we were saying, faith is like lying down in your bed. Faith is like resting all of your weight on someone else. Jesus would let you rest all of the weight of your sinful soul on Him. And if you do, you will find immediate and eternal access to God. Just because Jesus cares how people approach God doesn't mean it's impossible to approach God. It just means it must be done His way. And He wants you to know His way. And He wants you to lay yourself down on Him, trusting Him to forgive you of all your sins, wiping your record completely clean. And as you trust in Him, He'll give you new heart and new life to walk with Him all the days of your life. The second point I want to make is that Jesus cares how Christians approach God. Our first point was that Jesus cares how people approach God. But it's important here that we remember that Jesus cares how Christians approach God. In our own fellowship back in Louisville, uh, we're going through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans just teaches this marvelous truth that everyone who believes in God is justified. They're declared righteous. When a person becomes a Christian, they're not getting declared righteous. They're not improving until they are declared righteous. It says in Romans chapter 4 that God justifies the ungodly. That is that when you're ungodly and you haven't changed a thing and you haven't cleaned yourself up at all, the minute you believe, you are declared righteous. God declares the ungodly righteous. And it's amazing, uh, in Romans chapter 4, he uses the example of Abraham, the idolater, and David, the adulterer, as examples of the people God justifies. He says, even though Abraham wasn't circumcised and he was worshiping false gods, the minute he believed, he was declared righteous. Now, I can't stress this enough. He was not made righteous, like he was healed of some disease. He was 
clothed in righteousness. He was given a righteousness not his own. Righteousness is the, is what God gives us when He gives us the righteousness of Christ. And it happens instantaneously when we believe. And David, who'd committed adultery, nonetheless sang, how blessed am I? And he was blessed because God had not counted his sins against him, because God had counted Christ's righteousness to him. This is so important because our daily experience is of our sanctification, isn't it? Our daily experience is of how far we have to go, isn't it? Our daily experience is to notice all the things that we still need to change, and how far we wished we'd changed by this point, and now time's running out, and we haven't changed nearly as much as we'd like. That's where we live. But we have to remember that the whole Christian life is lived under the fact that we've already been declared righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Now that's true. And that's something you should stake your soul on. But sometimes when Christians really get clear about how justified they are, they can get the idea that they don't have a dynamic, changing relationship with God anymore. Once we get clear that we're in an unchanging status of being justified and declared righteous, we can then forget that there are ebbs and flows in our Christian life and God actually does care about the details of our Christian life. Just because you are justified doesn't mean you can saunter into God's presence like like you're yelling at the kids didn't matter. Just because you are justified doesn't mean you don't have an active and dynamic relationship with God. My kids are Fullertons. They got declared that on the birth certificate and it's a done deal. And no matter what they do, they are still mine. But how they behave affects our relationship. And how I behave affects that relationship. We have been declared righteous by the judge of all the universe, but we are still in a dynamic relationship with the Father who's forgiven us. And it matters how we approach Him. I stress this because the Sermon on the Mount was not written primarily for the unbelieving world, but it was written for believers. When Jesus says, when you come and bring your gift to the altar, He's not just warning the Muslims not to approach Him the wrong way, or the Buddhists not to approach Him the wrong way. He's speaking to believers about how to approach Him in the course of their Christian lives. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's who's hearing this Sermon on the Mount as the primary audience, as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get to Matthew chapter 5, and it says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We're talking to believers. Which means we're talking to you and I. Jesus cares how Christians approach God. And there's evidence of this all over the New Testament, isn't there? Maybe look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And this is a word to husbands. And it actually reminds me of a time my wife and I were driving home from Virginia listening to two matching Paul Washer sermons on this passage. And I'll tell you that story for a second. First, we listened to the passage where Paul uh, exhorted the husbands. And I was driving, and by the end of the sermon, I kind of was like this. And, And my wife was in the chair next to me going, you need to hear this. And, and she was right. I needed to hear this. And so we managed to recover from that sermon and repent and hopefully work through a few things. And then it was suggested we listen to the other sermon. <laughs> and by the time that one was done, Christy had slouched lower and lower and lower in her chair. And I, I might have had a little bit of, you really have needed to hear this. And by the time it was all said and done, we'd both heard what we needed and been helped. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we get the address to husbands. And as we get the address to husbands, we're reminded of this truth that Jesus cares how Christians approach God. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice that the husband who does not understand his wife, honor his wife, and acknowledge her as a fellow heir of the grace of life with him, does not have an unhindered prayer life. One of the things I've found in in the circles I can run in and you can run in, is we so emphasize the need for the gospel to get to the nations quickly. And we so emphasize the need to send out our best to reach the nations. That when single men who've grabbed a hold of that vision get married, they find the ways in which their wives, sorry for putting it this way, slow them down to be an ungodly burden. And they regard the work it takes to shepherd their wife as something distracting them from following God in fullness. And to that, I just want to remind you, Paul told us that it was better to be single. But then he said, everyone has their gift. And he said, if you don't have the gift of singleness, you're going to have trouble. Now you can spend your whole life going, duh. I got the trouble calling. Or you can receive that as the trouble that God has given you. And you can labor to understand that trouble. And you can labor to honor that trouble. And by the way, maybe just I should say to share with all the sisters, it goes both ways. I get it. It goes both ways. We're a lot of trouble to you. But that process of understanding and honoring is not something we should regret as detracting us from holiness. But rather, that process of understanding and honoring is something we should embrace 
as the way we can do the most effective thing for the completion of the Great Commission anyway, which is to pray unhindered. And so we, we need to recognize that the way we're treating our kids and our wives, the way we're treating others has the capacity to hinder our prayers. And once your prayers are hindered, everything else in your Christian life is hindered. Right? I mean, they will, sometimes I will, I will talk to uh, couples who are stumbling as they're heading towards marriage, and I'll say, you know, there's all kinds of reasons you need to walk in purity, but the prayer meeting is one of them. Yeah. Because when you fall throughout the week, you, you make yourself less useful as we seek the Lord together. And so, I just, I just am trying to make the same point that Jesus cares how Christians approach God and our obedience or disobedience has effects. Does it affect our justification? May it never be. Once declared righteous, always righteous in the sight of God. Does it affect the ebb and flow of our walk with the Father? It does. Indeed it does. Uh, let me show you another example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you turn there, let me just remind you of something I said a few nights ago. that When we feel that pinch of conviction... When we feel that pinch of conviction, it's not the proof that what we thought all along is true, that God hates us and He's really out to get us. It is an act of God's love. God is loving us in the Gospel when we feel that pinch of conviction. When He, he rebukes those He loves. He, he's loving your wife, husband, by calling you to greater understanding and honor. He's, he's loving you, wife, by speaking to your husband. He's, he's loving all of us by calling us to greater holiness because we're a greater blessing to one another as we walk with Him. So again, we're not being condemned as we feel the pinch of conviction, but rather we're being addressed in love by the One who wants us to walk with Him in all of life. 1 Corinthians, uh, we notice the same principle again, that Jesus cares how Christians approach God. Um, Verse 17 to the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 17 to the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll summarize what was happening there. Uh, it's, it's scandalous to think of what was happening there. The, the rich Christians were getting together and they were getting drunk before the Lord's Supper. And then the poorer Christians, who probably had to come to the meeting later because of their work schedules, were showing up and starving. And then once one group was glutted and drunk and the other group was hungry, they'd bring out the bread and the wine to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Paul actually makes this comment. He says, it's, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Isn't that a sobering thought? Yeah. Uh, our fellowship, we celebrate Lord's Supper every week. And it's an amazing thought to think, if we're doing it while being divided, it's not the Lord's Supper that we eat. God does not honor ceremony alone. He doesn't do it. No matter what context you do the Lord's Supper, if you've got little cups or big cups, you've got a love meal or no love meal, whatever way in which that ceremony is celebrated, without the reality of unity, it's not being celebrated. Or it is being celebrated when there is unity. And then the Apostle Paul, as he speaks to them, speaks so strangely to us because very often as Christians we think the number one danger in our fellowship 
is that an unbeliever take the Lord's Supper. Now, we uh, try to do all we can to discourage unbelievers from taking the Lord's Supper in our fellowship. But the primary concern of Paul in 1 Corinthians is not unbelievers taking the Lord's Supper. It's believers taking it wrongly. He says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. <coughs> let, ex- let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Just make sure there's no unrepented sin, no break in fellowship in your life as you approach the Lord's Supper. That is why many of you, sorry, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see here how it's saying to people, you might get sick, you might die, and if you get sick and die, it's so you won't be condemned. Do you hear that? This is for believers. And God, in His desire to not see believers condemned, will use the most severe disciplines to keep them out of sin. It's amazing. One of the things we'll do as a elders at Emmanuel is when someone will come to ask the elders to pray, um, we take the words of James 5 seriously and we anoint them with oil and ask God to pray, uh, to heal them. Actually, I should just mention, this week, a baby was born to a couple who absolutely could not have children. I realize there's couples who've gone through that and still can't have children. God can sustain that. But it's always marvelous when he moves in with that kind of miracle-working power. Anyway, as we uh, pray for people, we will just ask them, we'll say, listen, we don't believe every sickness is from sin. Jesus says in John 9, why was this man born blind? Was, was it because of his sin or his father's sin? And Jesus says, it wasn't anybody's sin. It was so they could show my glory. So we make it clear we don't believe all sicknesses from sin. But we do believe some sicknesses from sin. And so it's important as we pray for you that we, is there any sin that would be right to be confessed right now? Some sickness, we're, we're told right here, comes from sin. And so we shouldn't think, oh, I must be in sin every time I get the flu. But when we get sick, it's not inappropriate to ask, is there anything, Lord, that you want me to notice? Anything that I should be repenting of? I, uh, I had two herniated discs this last July, and I... I don't generally feel this way. I get a sore neck all the time, and I don't, I don't think, oh, God must hate me. I don't think that. But as I got these herniated discs, God just gave me the impression, you're, you're being disciplined. And indeed, I was seeing ways in which I wasn't dwelling with my wife in an understanding way. And there was just a, a process of repenting of that and asking God to forgive me. And uh, amazingly, I'm, I'm basically healed, which is just unbelievable. Jesus cares how Christians approach God. Third point. God wants our relationships prioritized over ritual. This is my last point. God wants our relationships prioritized over ritual. That's the clearest point of the passage, right? 
as you read first as you read Matthew chapter 5 and maybe even notice the word first so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift and you see that pattern first discern the lord's body then eat the lord's supper first be reconciled to your wife then your prayers won't be hindered Put the reality of godliness up front and let the ceremony follow in behind. Don't eliminate the ceremony. Just because I'm saying the ceremony is less important doesn't mean it's not important. But make sure that the reality of community love and those who you may have sinned against goes first. There's a fascinating passage in Joel 2.16 where it says, it's talking about, it's calling the people of Israel to repent and it says, let the bridegroom leave his chamber. So it's your honeymoon. And you're going together with your wife and you recognize there's something that you've sinned against and Joel says, leave your chamber, go. That's the level of importance God places on these things we're speaking of. And so what I want to do is this in the last remaining moments we have together is to ask you to just open up a season uh, where the Holy Spirit might move on all of our consciences. I was testing my own this morning for approaching you. Are there any places where you need to go to someone first before celebrating the Lord's Supper? And let me begin just by speaking to you parents. What's it like for your children to watch you take the Lord's Supper? What is that experience like for them? When they see you taking the bread and the cup, do they think to themselves, that's my dad and that's my mom. And in in daily life, they are regularly trusting in the cross of Christ and repenting of their sins. And they've even repented of their sins to me. And it's just a delight to see them take the Lord's Supper. I remember one of our former elders telling me that he, he got up at five in the morning one time and woke up his kids just to tell them before he went off to church where he'd sinned against them and asked them to forgive him. That, that kind of environment makes kids who look at their parents and go, I know you're not perfect. I'm getting to the kid. My, my kids are old enough now. They say to me things like that. Dad, we know you're not perfect. You're like, I liked it when you were so young that you... No, no, I didn't like that. But <laughs> Dad, we know you're not perfect. So it's not wrong for kids to know our, our, their parents aren't perfect. The question is, are they repenters? Are they people who don't just go to church and put on a show... Or they go to the, but they go to church and take the bread and the cup as part of their integrity, as, as one more example of how they're trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you need to recognize that every week your kids are taking stock of your life. And you're better off delaying, going to another room, heading out into the car, going somewhere for coffee, doing whatever it takes to get things right with that child before taking the Lord's Supper. Husbands and wives. Does your wife love to worship with you? One of the things that's hard as a preacher is you gotta, while you're preaching, you kinda gotta give your wife the smile test every now and then during uh, the service. Just make sure it's still there. And, uh, and of course that should be tended to before you start preaching. But there's a real sense in which, oh, the damage a preacher can do to their own wife. If she's got to receive the Word of God regularly from a man she knows doesn't repent 
of the very sins He's pointing out in others. God wants that to be reconciled before we approach the Lord's Supper. What about students? Over the course of my life as a pastor, we've had a number of students who've had to confess to lying in regards to their grades. I just heard actually recently this week of some homeschool students at our fellowship that were lying in the way they were doing their testing. Had one a young lady who was a dentist who recognized that she had lied in the way she got into her program and that to confess her sins might risk her being kicked out of the university she was at. And as we talked to her, she determined it would be worth getting kicked out of university to have real fellowship with God. What about you who have siblings? Siblings, the excused fighting in the world. It's like it's allowable there. What's it like for your siblings to watch you follow God? Can, can they acknowledge that they, they see a real life of integrity when you take the Lord's Supper? Remember, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not saying, I did it this week, I was awesome. We're saying, Lord, I'm still a sinner in need of grace. And that's the way I've presented myself to those in my life as well. I've acknowledged my sin and looked for Your grace. Maybe some of you have stolen something. Maybe there's a theft in the background of your life. Before I was converted, I was a total thief. And uh, a few months after I was saved, I was driving along in a big yellow Schwann's truck in southern Alberta selling uh, frozen foods and ice cream. And uh, I was listening to Kay Arthur. And Kay Arthur came on and she began to talk about restitution. I'd never heard any teaching on this before. I was a brand new Christian. And God began to flood me with thousands of dollars I had stolen. I spent a night in a hotel uh, because I was away from home writing out three pages of people I'd stolen from. And then I spent the next months basically funneling all the money I could to pay those off. And it was painful. But one of the things it did was my, my mother actually did not believe the integrity of my own conversion. She thought it was just a phase. But when she got a check for all the money I'd stolen from her, it reinforced the reality of what God was doing. And in fact, she's walking with the Lord now as well. I want to be clear. I don't want to make this a burden that you can't bear. It's important to say at this time, some relationships can't be mended. The book of Romans says we are to do, we are to be at peace with all men insofar as it depends on us. So there's some situations where you're like, oh no, this sermon is just going to shackle my conscience forever. God only requires that you do all you can. It always takes two parties for full reconciliation, which means you can't always make every relationship reconciled. But you can confess all of your sin, even to people who will condemn you for it. And you can extend an offer of forgiveness to those who've sinned against you. And then God wants that before we go through any ceremony of following Him. Can I make one more just note of wisdom? It would be possible uh, to take these sermons and to say, okay, from now on I want to do better. And I, I hate to say it, but it really is important that you go back before you go forward. This is not the kind of teaching where you just say, oh, from now on I'm going to really pursue this unity. We have to recognize those places where unity has been breached. We need to go back. 
We need to ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness wherever there's been a breach. Because the problem is if, if you just go on trying to do better next time, the person that, who's watching you go on goes, oh good, everyone else gets grace, but I got left offended. God wants you to go back to where there's been bad conversations. That, that, may, that may take weeks, that may take months, that may take a minute. Some conversations, it's, hey brother, I'm sorry, no problem. Others are, we really need to talk something out. But going back will always be the best way forward. It will lead you the furthest along. And so please do not neglect this word to first be reconciled. And then, one point of wisdom, I would say to those who are in the process of pursuing reconciliation, they're doing all they can, but there's still more to do. Take the Lord's Supper in that process. Don't absent yourself for months and months on end while you work at something. You need to get started. Make the first phone call. Make, get things rolling. But then when those, when those, my, those situations in my own life, I take the bread and I take the cup and I think to myself, Lord, it's this that I need to keep me going in this process of reconciliation. Make it right. Because what's at stake is pleasing God. The healing His Spirit brings. And really, joy in worship. Let me leave you with one story, and then I'll be done. Many of you may be aware that in the course of uh, D.L. Moody's ministry, uh, it's said that he would sometimes lead one person to the Lord a day. That's incredible. And uh, on one particular occasion, he was uh, ministering and speaking uh, in these evangelistic meetings. And nothing was happening. He said it was like he was beating the air that was said of the time. No results were happening. No one was being converted. And of course, when you're used to leading one person to the Lord a day, you notice something wrong in that whole process. And finally, along in the course of the meetings, uh, Moody just threw out the offhanded comment, maybe there's someone here harboring a spirit of unforgiveness. And when he said that, one of the organizers of the meeting just immediately stood up and left the meeting. And came back the next day and said there was something I had to make right. Moody says that night at the meetings, the uh, inquirer's rooms were full of unbelievers looking for Christ. That's what we've been saying all along. The unity of the church is where God places His blessing. It's where He advances evangelism in the church. And it's no distraction from the advancement of the Great Commission to give the time and attention needed to cultivate deep unity in the body of Christ. And as we do, we will see the Word of God run forth speedily and do what it was set out to do. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. Lord, we we thank You for the way You graciously lead us along. Lord, You are severe and kind. Lord, You hold us to the highest standard, but yet with the sweetest promises and the greatest incentive. Lord, I pray that no one would receive this word as a condemning word, but only as a word that is a word of love from our Father to bring us into true worship, which is why we were saved. And Lord God, I pray that no one would shirk off the urgency of this word. But Lord God, that you would grant so many mended relationships, maybe not even now, maybe needed now, but I don't know that. You know that. But wherever they're needed, Lord, do it now. But also, Lord, just set a trajectory for the future. 
We beg you, Lord God, that you would just increase the warmth and joy and zeal and unity of this fellowship and all fellowships where the gospel is preached and cherished. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.